All right, let's turn now to Genesis 16. This is our sermon text, our Old Testament reading tonight. Genesis 16, read the whole chapter. Continuing on in the story of Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Genesis 16, let's hear God's word now. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, to, he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of a mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And our New Testament text here is Luke 1, 46-55. We saw there in Genesis 16, the God who sees His people in their affliction and shows mercy to them. And uh, here in Luke chapter 1, Mary is rejoicing in God that He has seen her and regarded her, even though she is a humble nobody. Uh, the Lord has seen her and shown her grace. So Luke 1, 46-55, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has regarded the lowly state of His maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is on those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm, he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. 
He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to bless his word to us. Gracious Lord God, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word. Make us humble before you. Uh, make us teachable. We pray that you would speak. Write your word in our heart. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 16, which we just read, is running a stress test on Genesis 15, which we covered last week. So Genesis 15, last week, we looked at how God comes to Abram, and he's already made all these great promises to Abram about having uh, a son, uh, having a great nation come from him, having this wonderful inheritance in the promised land in, in Canaan. God's already made all these promises to, to Abram, but God comes in Genesis 15, and he repeats them all. He, he, he comes to reassure Abram's faith, and then he guarantees it all with a covenant. He, kinda, he signs the paperwork, as it were. He makes it official. He, he puts his name down as saying, Abram, I am committed to my word. I bind myself legally to blessing you. Um, their, uh, their, their covenant ceremony is, uh, is a little bit different than some of our uh, binding ceremonies. Um, uh, instead of paperwork, there are bloody animals cut in half. Right, God says to Abram, get these, get these animals. This is the covenant-making practice in the culture around them. You take these animals, uh, these sacrificial animals, you cut them in half, you lay the pieces on either side to make, a, to make an aisle between them. And then uh, to, to seal this agreement, you walk between the pieces to say, if I don't hold up my end of this agreement, may it be done to me as was done to these animals. May that punishment fall on me. Just it, it, that, that was a way they had of showing how seriously a covenant was to be taken. And uh, so God tells Abram to do this, and, and God walks through the pieces. Abram doesn't. Just God. God walks through, and he's saying, I take on myself my obligations to bless you, and I take on myself my obligation to make sure that you also are upheld, and that your end of the covenant also is, is upheld. He's taking all the responsibility for making sure this, this covenant stands. It's an astounding act of God's condescension and his love for his people. He doesn't need to do this for Abram. He is God Almighty, the creator of the universe, but he comes down to one man, a sinner, with no claim on him, and he comes and he says, I will be your God forever. I will bless you. And he binds himself permanently, graciously to Abram. That's Genesis 15. That was last week. Genesis 16, this week, is the stress test on the covenant. Is it going to hold when faith falters? When God's people start breaking this covenant already? When God's people start forgetting Him? When they start living as though they aren't in covenant with Him? He doesn't exist. They've never heard a promise. They take matters into their own hands. Can the covenant handle the stress of Abram's sin and failure and faithlessness? Now, this isn't just a question, you know, uh, 
what you know what's going on in this story in the Bible kind of question. This is a this is a, vi- a vital question for ourselves because we ourselves need to know the answer to this question for our own lives. Is the covenant commitment of God to me stronger than my sin? Is his faithfulness stronger than my faithlessness? Is his commitment to me enough? My faith often falters. My obedience often stumbles. I often react to my circumstances, not with the eyes of faith, but just looking in my own self-reliance. So is his grace sufficient for me, for you? Is his grace enough? Genesis 16 says, absolutely. Yes, it's more than enough. His covenant stands. His promise stands. His grace abounds here. God is not absent, even as Abram's household is uh, almost torn apart by sin. God is not absent. He sees everything that's going on, and His grace is more than enough for it. So let's walk through the text here. The, the, the story kind of has two acts. The first act, uh, verses 1 through 6, is about faith faltering. And then the second act of the story is about, uh, it's verses 7 through the end of the chapter, is about God seeing and God saving. So two, two headings tonight. Our first one is this, a blind faith. Verses, verses 1 through 6, a, a blind faith. Um, the Bible does not call us to have blind faith. It tells us to have clear-sighted faith, right? The vision of God that's clear, a conviction about who God is. That, Abram had that in chapter 15. He saw clearly who God was, and he was convicted about it. He, he was certain about it. He trusted God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But here in chapter 16, that clear-sighted faith is nowhere to be seen. Faith seems to go blind, for a little while in these first six verses. Uh, verse 1 starts with um, this reminder for us that Abram's wife, Sarai, still hasn't had any children. Remember, this is the essence, probably, of the promise God made to Abram. You're going to have a son, and he's gonna, he's gonna, a great nation will come from you. But they're getting older and older and older. They're in their 80s, and still no son. And they've been waiting for a long time. And it, finally, it reaches a breaking point, at least for Sarai, and, and it seems Abram as well. The, the gap that they're living in between the promise and the fulfillment becomes unbearable to them, uh, becomes too painful. You can imagine Sarai saying to Abram, you know, it's great that the Lord came and made those promises to you, made that nice covenant with you. But where's the payoff? Where's the fulfillment? We've been waiting and waiting, but there's nothing to show for it. A promise is nice, but where's the fulfillment? Every day feels like they're getting farther away from God fulfilling this promise, not closer. Sarah says in verse 2, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. She's putting all the blame on God. The Lord is keeping me back from the very promise that He gave. She's frustrated. She's cynical. Gone is humble trust. She's disappointed. She's cynical towards God. She's disappointed. Do you sympathize with her? I'm sure we've all felt something similar. Lord, you don't see my need anymore. Where's the fulfillment? You've made all these promises, all these promises, and you keep saying, just trust me, just trust me. 
You ever feel like you just, you're, you're tired of hearing that? You just want the fulfillment now? It's easy to fall into this. We get, we get sucked into the situation that we're in. And our eyes are taken off the Lord and off the sufficiency of His promises. We need to, when we're in that, we need to step back and remind ourselves, who is the God who's made the promise? He can't lie. He cannot break His Word. He has, he has bound Himself with an unbreakable bond to His people to bless them. He will do it. But when we get discouraged like Sarai does here, we often then do what Sarai does here, which is she goes on and she takes matters into her own hands. Enough waiting on the Lord. She's going she's gonna to find her own solution. So she has this servant, Hagar, this Egyptian servant, probably one that she acquired during their ill-conceived trip to Egypt back in chapter 12. But anyway, um, Sarai decides to give this servant uh, that she has, Hagar, to Abram, uh, sort of as a concubine. Um, Abram can sleep with her, have a child by her, and that child can be Abram's offspring, the child of promise. Um, they, can have, they can have a child this way. Uh, this was a common practice. This was, this was a legal practice that you, could, that you could do in the ancient Near East. Um, just go find another woman and then adopt that child and, and make it the legal heir. Um, uh, it was culturally acceptable, but it was not acceptable in the Lord's sight. Uh, this, is a, this is an instance where Abram and Sarai are, 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 are drifting towards worldliness. They're assimilating more to the culture around them. Uh, so far in Genesis, no one in the line of God has had more than one wife. Um, the ones that stand out as having more than one spouse are, are, are in the line of, uh, of, uh, of Cain. Think of uh, that, that, that sinful line, like Lamech, for example, in Genesis 4, takes two wives. And it's an act of rebellion against the way God made things to be. Um, so so this, this, uh, this might be culturally acceptable for Abram and Sarai to do, but it's still adultery in God's sight. It's still sin in his sight. He's patient with it. Um, but it's still sinful. So they, they take this route. Uh, Sarah is tired of waiting on the Lord. She takes matters into her own hands, even if it means bending and breaking God's rules to do it. How does Abram respond? How should he respond? He should see what's happening in his family. Um, as, a, as a godly man, as a godly leader, he should, he should see what's going on. Uh, um, he should say to Sarai, Sarai, this is not a good idea. Um, we know the Lord. I know you're discouraged, but let's keep waiting on the Lord. He has, he has been faithful to us. He's blessed us in many ways. He's, he's made the promise. We know who He is. He is, he is Yahweh. He's made this promise. He cannot lie. We, we know that, my dear wife. Right? He, he should say that to her. But He doesn't. He completely drops the ball. Verse 2 ends with an ominous note. It says, Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Now, there are many, many times when we should heed the voice of our spouses and then when we should listen very, very carefully to our wives. Probably our error is not in listening to them too much, but in listening to them too little. Um, however, this, this note here, uh, Abram heeded the voice of Sarai, is an ominous echo. Back to Genesis 3, 17. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Temptation comes. 
don't trust the Lord, don't wait on the Lord, take the easy way, uh, to, uh, to take, take, take that thing you want without waiting on the Lord and, and submitting to Him. Um, that's the temptation that comes. Eve is the one who's more active in that. Adam sits back passively, lets it happen. And then uh, Genesis 3.17, God comes to Adam and He says, you have heeded the voice of your wife. Right? Adam's failure is partly there, a failure of leadership, a failure of standing on his convictions, leading his wife, leading his household in faith. And Abram's making a very similar mistake here. He is being passive. He is going along with this pragmatism and this cynicism. Um, and, and so the, the, all the responsibility here for this sinful circumstance unfolding is not on Sarah. Yes, she bears responsibility for it, but so much of it also rests on Abram. So much of what happens in this chapter could have not happened if he had uh, led, led his household well in faith. And, and perhaps he's also full of doubt in the promise of God. And he is fed up with waiting. And he is ready to try something else as well. But he goes along with the plan. Uh, he takes Hagar, uh, he sleeps with her, and sure enough, uh, she conceives right away. And she's going to have a child. Well, at this point in the story, you might expect that Abram and Sarai are happy, uh, that things, things are wonderful now. They got what they wanted. The plan's working like a charm. Um, but that's the opposite of what we see. Sin's consequences, brothers and sisters, are never what we expect. Sin never simplifies things. It always complicates things. Um, Suddenly things are worse now even than they were before. Because now Hagar, Sarai's servant, is is suddenly in this position of power. Um, uh, uh, Having a child was was a mark of status. It was a mark of divine blessing in the ancient world. And so she looks down at Sarai. Sarai, I was able to have, I was able to conceive right away. Uh, I'm, God must favor me more than he favors you. And she starts looking down on him and, uh, and, and rubbing it in and despising Sarai, lording it over her and, uh, and, uh, and uh, being cruel towards her. Again, maybe now Abram will step up. Now at this point, maybe Abram will step up and do the right thing. Uh, lead his household in repentance and faith. Realize the consequences of what they've done. But he doesn't. Sarai instead comes to him in verse 5 and says, My wrong be upon you. I gave you my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So she puts the blame on her husband. Abram, it's your fault, not mine. Abram takes the easy road. He says, okay, do what you want with her. It's in your hands. Do what you want with her. No, saying we need to repent, we need to trust the Lord, uh, we've done the wrong thing. He just says, treat her the way that you want. No concern for Hagar, uh, no concern for the holiness of his house. So he gives Hagar over to, uh, to Sarai, and Sarai treats her the way she wants to. She starts being cruel towards her. She's, she treats her so badly that Hagar, who is pregnant, would rather run away into the wilderness by herself where she doesn't know anybody and, and where she has no means to provide for herself and face the dangers of living alone and a, in a wilderness than stay there in their home. So she, she runs away. That, so what we see here is that sin has, has driven these wedges into this household. 
It's driven a wedge between Hagar and Sarah, of course. It's also driven this wedge in between Sarah and Abram, uh, where, where, where uh, she is pointing the finger at him, blaming him. Um, so, so there's this dysfunction. There's, it's, it's, a, it's an ugly picture here. This is not part of the family story that, that you want people to know about. Uh, this, this, is, this is an embarrassment. Are these really the people of God and they're acting like this? So manipulative, so cruel, um, so forgetful of, of God's promises. Uh, Sarai is, is full of doubt. Abram is passive and unfaithful. And Hagar herself is not an innocent victim. I mean, she was cruel and, and mistreated Sarai. And now she's disobeyed and run away from, from, uh, from her mistress. Uh, this, this, is, this, this is the end result. When you, when you take the road of cynical unbelief in God and a pragmatic approach, this is, this is the end result. Um, this is where taking a passive approach to these things of God results. Uh, we're tempted to ask, I think, is this really the same Abram? In chapter 15, he was, he was doing so well. Trusting the Lord, right? Uh, trusting the Lord uh, with all his heart. And now he is here seeming to completely have forgotten him. Uh, but this is, this is how we also often are in our Christian life, aren't we? Uh, one day we're full of faith and trust in the Lord. And then just a few, you know, not long later, we are taking our eyes off him, taking matters into our own hands, uh, give sin a foothold, and it works its way in. That's the first act of the story, Genesis 1 through 6. It ends, uh, it ends with sin and failure and dysfunction, a very ugly picture. The grand promises of Genesis 15 seem far away. Um, so what is God going to do? What is God going to do with this mess? Well, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. What we see here is our second point, a seeing God. Verses 7 to 16, a seeing God. We see here that God sees. He sees all of this. He didn't miss any of it. He didn't, he didn't miss any of the dysfunction, any of the sin, any of the suffering. He sees it all. And he doesn't, he doesn't rush in with judgment, but he, he comes in with his grace. We should, I want to draw out four things here about what, what God does. First of all, we see that he moves towards Hagar in grace. Verse 7 tells us that God finds Hagar in the wilderness. He sees her. His eye has been on her. He hasn't, uh, he, he's been watching her this whole time, caring for her. He's not going to allow her to die or be abandoned. Um, she's an Egyptian, remember, but he's treating her like she's a member of the covenant of grace. Um, notice how the text here refers to the, the angel of the Lord, Yahweh. That's the covenant family name of God. Um, Yahweh is saving an Egyptian. It's, 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 it's miraculous. And, and God is entirely acting on his own initiative here. You don't see Hagar praying to him, crying out, Lord, uh, yeah, come and, and save me. God is simply coming to her. You know, this must have just blown her away. She has just run away from her mistress, disobeyed her mistress. Um, would the God of her mistress really come and, and save her? Uh, why, why would he care about what happened to her? She's just one lonely woman, um, a sinful woman at that. Why would God show her mercy? But, but God is gracious to her and he moves towards her. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel here. This is how God acts towards us. He doesn't wait for us to believe. 
doesn't wait for us to shape up and show some faith and courage. Uh, he doesn't wait for us to cry out to Him. He sees us. He sees us in our sin. He sees us in our suffering. He sees us under the curse of the law. He sees us uh, under the shadow of death. He sees us vulnerable and powerless uh, in grief and in sorrow, and He has compassion. And He shows us grace. And He sends a Savior. He sends someone to come and redeem us, save us, raises us up by His grace, gives us new life in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why God sent His Son. This is how God continues also to relate to us. All through the Christian life, He he keeps His eye on you, loved ones. Always. Even if you're struggling with sin, even if you're faltering in your faith, He has His eye on His people. He's watching over us. Even when you are living as without reference to Him, living by the eyes of the flesh, not the eyes of the faith, He does not abandon you in the wilderness. Even the wilderness of your doubt and struggle, He's got His eye there on you by His grace. He sent His Son for you. He's made a covenant with you. He's cut it in His own Son. He's, he's shed the blood of His Son to seal those promises to you. He will not take His eye off you. He sees you. Whatever you are going through. And His grace will not let you go. So God moves towards Hagar in grace. He moves towards us in grace in Christ Jesus. The second thing we see here is that God demands repentance as well. God demands repentance. In verse 8, God comes to Hagar and asks the question, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? And where are you going? Uh, It reminds me of the way God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden after their sin. He comes with a question. Yes, he's he's coming in a sense in judgment, but he's coming to draw out a confession of sin uh, so that he can show grace and mercy. Um, He he asks Hagar the question, and she admits her sin. And then God says in verse 9, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. As we look at the account here, it's probably not Hagar's sin that most stands out to us, is it? Um, She looks like the victim. And in many ways, she is. Then she's been taken advantage of and she's been treated cruelly. The guilt, the greater guilt seems to lie with Abram and Sarai. They seem more to blame for what's gone wrong here. Uh, She's more sinned against than sinning. Uh, But God says to her, Hagar, you also need to repent. You need to go back to Sarai. There's an important principle here. Uh, Now, it's not telling us that if, uh, that, if, that if you're in an abusive relationship, you're not allowed to leave that relationship. Uh, that if someone's treating you cruelly, you need to just be quiet and put up with it. It's not, it's not saying that. Um, but it is saying that God's grace demands repentance and obedience. And that repentance and obedience that His grace demands is often costly and hard. Um, God comes to us in grace before we've changed, before we've, we've started in obedience again, but that grace then demands a response of trust and obedience. I'm sure the last thing Hagar wants to do is go back. God comes and says, you need to go back. It's going to be hard for her to go back, but the Lord commands it. She must do it. Um, and that's often the way it is in our own lives, isn't it? God, God comes and, and he says, you need to repent. You need, you need to go and, and, and do this thing I'm asking you to do, even though it's hard. 
Even though it's going to, to, to be painful for you, we, we, we've, got to, we've got to do it. Even, even uh, if uh, we feel like the other person is really more guilty in this situation, they should be the first ones to come in repentance. Shouldn't, shouldn't, Lord, shouldn't you go and tell Abram and Sarai to come out to the wilderness and, and, and get me and repent first? But he doesn't. Um, even if we think we are the less guilty party in a conflict... Um, we need to look closely at ourselves and see if we need to repent ourselves. Uh, uh, that uh, uh, we, we need to be careful to keep a close eye on ourselves. Take, take a good look at our hearts and say, where am I in the wrong? Maybe I, I feel more sinned against than sinning myself, but where have I reacted in sin? What do I need to repent of? And how do I need to obey? There will come a time when the other party in that conflict needs to also repent and where that conversation needs to happen. But first think, how does God want me to walk in obedience here and now? So, someone else's sin against us doesn't justify us sinning in response. Um, we need to repent ourselves. The third thing we see here, God promises blessing. Verses 11 and 12, he's, uh, he's come to Hagar in grace. Uh, he's, he's come to her in mercy. Um, and uh, he's also called her to repentance. And now the third thing, he promises blessing to her. He promises her that she will have this baby. This baby she's carrying, it'll be, a, it'll be born and it will be a son. Um, God even picks out the name for the boy. Uh, it's Ishmael, which uh, comes from the Hebrew uh, Shema, uh, to hear, and then El, which, is, which means God. Ishmael, God hears. God say, name this child God hears, because I heard you in your affliction. I, I heard you, I saw you in your affliction. This son is going to have, uh, uh, he, he's going to be involved in a lot of conflict later on. God promises her here, but, but take heart. He's, you're going to have a son, and he's also going to be a great nation. The Lord, the Lord is promising her to, to bless this child's descendants as well. So he promises this great blessing. The fourth thing we, we, we see here is that God restores faith. God's grace continues to work in the situation. We see it first in Hagar. She responds to the Lord in verse 13 with this wonderful confession of faith. She says, you are the God who sees. This is, her, this is Hagar's own name for the Lord. You are the God who sees. Lord, you saw me. You, what a marvel to her. She is just astounded. Um, uh, she was blind to God. She was not in acting in faith to him. She had run away from all of that. She was being disobedient to him. But he saw her, and he cared for her, and he came himself to, uh, uh, to, to call her back. Um, no Egyptian god was like this. Right? She's from Egypt. No, no Egyptian god came to her in the wilderness, saw her suffering, but the Lord did. Came and found her alone and scared in the wilderness. This, this Yahweh, this Lord, this God who sees me. So she responds in faith. Uh, she also responds with obedience. In verse 15, we're told she bore Abram, a son. The implication, she went back to Abram and Sarai. Uh, she went back to, to them with her eyes on the God who sees. She walked in obedience back to Abram and Sarai and submitted herself to them. She's been transformed by the grace of God. Uh, grace has superabounded in her, and she is now producing faith and obedience. God's grace is not only active in her, it's also evident in Abram and Sarai. 
Um, it's not brought out as much in the text for us, but, but notice two things. First, verse 14, uh, we get the name for this well. When, when Hagar ran away, she goes to this, this well in the wilderness, and now the well gets a name. Uh, it's called Beer Lahai Roy. Uh, nice, catchy name, easy to say. <laughs> this, this name, Beer Lahai Roy, it, it literally means the well of the one who lives and sees me. Now, who do you, th- who, who do you suppose named the well? It could have been Hagar, um, but it's probably Abram. He's 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 sort of the the one. He's the the patriarch. He's the authority. He's probably the one who gets to name uh, things in the region. And I I think what has happened here is Hagar comes back. She comes back a new woman, transformed by the grace of God. She comes back and she tells them what has happened. And Abram and Sarai are humbled themselves, and they also repent, and they marvel at God's grace. This, this God who sees, who saw Hagar, who also saw them, even in all the ugliness and sin and dysfunction of their family. Um, and, uh, and so Abram's convicted by this as well. And he says, yes, let's name the well, the, the, the God who sees. And then uh, we also see that Abram himself gives, uh, gives his son Ishmael the name Ishmael, uh, the name that the Lord told Hagar to give this boy. Uh, and of course, that means the Lord. The Lord hears, and so Abram and Sarai see that that God has shown them grace also, and He's restored faith in them again, as well. Now, brothers and sisters, as we bring this to a close, the Lord has shown us this same kind of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we asked to be seen, before we asked to be heard, He saw us and He heard us. And he sent Jesus to be our Savior. Now, our, we're often tempted to take our eyes off him. Circumstances get hard. Uh, promises are, 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 don't seem like enough when the fulfillment seems fo- so far away and, and our faith falters. Uh, what do we do? We look to that gift of God in Jesus Christ, the grace of God in Jesus Christ to us. And we remember, yes, yes, he does see he saw me then. He sent Jesus Christ. Of course he sees me now. Genesis 16, I said, as we started, is the stress test on the covenant. And, and as we come to the end of it, we see God's grace is more than enough. Super abounds to sinners. It shines bright in the darkness of dysfunction and faltering faith. And so it does for us. So keep your eyes on him, loved ones. His promises stand. His commitment to you is sure. Keep your eyes Keep your eyes on Christ and and the covenant of grace that is ours in Him. His commitment to you cannot be broken. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank You for Your grace to us. That when we were far from You, You came and found us in our sin and our misery, and You brought us to Yourself in our Lord Jesus. We thank You for Him. Thank You for Your grace in Him. Thank You for Your commitment to us, O Lord. Lord, we pray that even as you are faithful to us, you would make us more faithful uh, to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.